This is Read Japanese Literature. My name is Allison Fincher. Read Japanese Literature is a podcast about Japanese fiction and some of its best works. All the works we discuss are available in translation, so you can read along if you want, and you can find out more at readjapaneseliterature.com. Today we're talking about the 1930s and 40s in Japan, fascism, World War II, and the American occupation. In particular, how did 20 years of censorship shape Japanese literature? I should mention that World War II is really an American and European way to think about this period of time. Some Japanese historians talk about the entire period between 1931 and 1935 as the 15-year war. And some critics might talk about all literature from this period as war literature. Depending on who's speaking or writing about the period, you might hear the terms the Great East Asia War or the Pacific War. My goal for the first season of this podcast is to give a broad overview of Japanese literary history. Today's episode could easily be four or more episodes, but I'm trying to keep a forward momentum in our story. I have plans to come back to many of the topics, time periods, and authors I'm barely going to touch on today. If there's a particular author or topic you're interested in learning more about, I'd love to hear from you. As always, contact through the website or at at readjapaneselit. One more quick note. I'm a literary historian and a student of literature, but I'm also strongly anti-fascist. Talking about World War II, I can't avoid fascist writers entirely and be accurate to the story. But I will do my best never to celebrate their viewpoints, and I won't quote anything that I think promotes fascism. In our episode about literary magazines in Ryunosuke Akutagawa, we talked about the Taisho democracy. Today we're going to start with the growth of censorship during the Taisho era through the 1930s and in the lead-up to World War II. That growth really accelerated with the passage of the Peace Preservation Law in 1925. The Peace Preservation Law created the Special Higher Police, and the Special Higher Police began to suppress socialists, communists, and anyone trying to alter the Kokutai of Japan. Kokutai is an extremely fraught word that translates as something as simple as body politic or something as complicated as Japanese national essence or basis for the Japanese emperor's sovereignty. The peace preservation law itself wasn't an act of censorship, but it did become a crucial piece of legislation for suppressing thought. Ultimately, more than 70,000 people were arrested under the peace preservation law between 1925 and its abolition in 1945. The Taisho emperor died in 1926. His son Hirohito took his place. The Showa period lasted from Hirohito's ascension until his death in 1989. Hirohito became emperor at a really complex moment in Japanese history. The farmers were rising up, Laborers were organizing and striking, students were protesting, many writers had become deeply involved with the far left, 
and there was a general sense that modernism had become an unstoppable force. And that sense laid Japan open to the nationalism and fascism that quickly took hold in the 1930s. I'm going to dramatically abbreviate and oversimplify the rise of Japanese militarism. As always, I highly recommend Isaac Meyer's podcast, A History of Japan, as well as Andrew Gordon's book, A History of Japan from Tokugawa Times to the Present. There's also a fascinating and award-winning manga series about the period by the beloved Japanese artist Shigeru Mizuki, translated by Zach Davison, called Showa. And you can find links to all of these resources on the website. Some of the most right-wing members of Japan's military had never really been happy with Japan's position at the end of World War I. They felt, with some justification, that Japan had been slighted when the spoils were divided after Germany's defeat. Right-wing elements thought that Manchuria would be the right place to begin the empire they dreamed of. Manchuria was an area in today's far northeast China. Historians don't quite agree on exactly how deceptive these right-wing elements' means were. But right-wing elements in the military succeeded in creating a war. Japan invaded Manchuria in 1931, and most Japanese, both political elites and the ordinary people on the street, were pleased. In the aftermath of the invasion, the Japanese government increased persecution of left-wing writers. There was a wave of arrests in early 1932, and these arrests kicked off a phenomenon known as tenko. Tenko is usually translated as conversion. It might more accurately be translated as reorientation or maybe even about face. It's a formal declaration by a left-wing thinker or author that he or she no longer agrees with left-wing principles. It's estimated that almost 95% of imprisoned leftists in Japan made declarations of tenko. The government also took more control of economic, social, and political life in Japan. By 1937, police were openly interrupting campaign speeches that criticized the military or bureaucracy, or any speeches that used the word fascism. And that year, the Ministry of Education sent out a manifesto called The Cardinal Principles of the National Polity. This manifesto blamed Japan's social and ideological crisis on Western beliefs. The basic principles of social life and morality, this manifesto said, should come from serving the emperor's august will as one's own. And these sorts of ideas and principles guided what writers produced and what readers were able to read. On July 7th, 1937, there was a minor skirmish between Japanese and Chinese soldiers. The skirmish took place on the Marco Polo Bridge, just south of the Chinese city of Beijing. 
the skirmish took place on the Marco Polo Bridge, just south of the Chinese city of Beijing. By the end of the month, that conflict had escalated into the Second Sino-Japanese War. Most Westerners think of World War II as beginning with the German invasion of Poland in 1939. Some Americans delay the start of World War II even up until America declared war in December of 1941. But for many people of Asia, World War II began with the Marco Polo Bridge incident in 1937. Japan officially and unofficially deployed its writers as part of its war effort. Beginning even in the 1920s, magazines and newspapers sent correspondents to China, and this accelerated after the Nanjing Massacre. It was part of the Second Sino-Japanese War in December of 1937. The correspondents sent by the Japanese wrote articles and eventually full-length books. These articles and books were an important part of Japanese literary culture in the 1930s. Actually, the first Akutagawa Prize came out of one of these assignments, Tatsuzo Ishikawa's The Common People. I don't think The Common People has been translated into English, although some of Ishikawa's other work has. Ishikawa is a good example of censorship during the period, He finished writing another work, Soldiers Alive, in just 11 days. It was published less than two months after he arrived in Nanjing in December 1937, and it was published. But the night after publication, Ishikawa and his editor were informed by the Ministry of the Interior that it was prohibiting the sale of the magazine. This was after the magazine editors had already deleted up to a quarter of the original text. They deleted so much text because they were trying to protect themselves from the censors. Ishikawa and his editor were eventually tried and convicted for disturbing the peace. Ishikawa was sentenced to four months in prison, although he only served three. Soldiers Alive has been translated into English by Zelij Kosipris. Ishikawa eventually found himself freed, and trusted by the military enough to go back to China. A small number of the correspondents sent by magazines and newspapers were women. In August of 1938, the information section of the cabinet held a special meeting with many different writers, this time all men. The outcome was the pen butai, the pen unit. So many contemporary writers asked to participate in an upcoming attack that the government couldn't even accommodate them all. Very occasionally, the military took writers who had enlisted in the military and gave them actual orders to write as a part of their service. Ashihei Hino was almost certainly the most famous writer to formally work as a military propagandist. He later insisted that the military outlined very specific conditions for his writing. He could never describe the Japanese army losing. He could never allude to criminal acts by Japanese soldiers. He had to portray the enemy as loathsome and contemptible. Of course, he could never disclose anything about military units or their makeup. It seems like a minimally fair standard not to give away military secrets. And finally, he couldn't depict soldiers as individual characters 
with their own human thoughts and feelings. For a while, war in the Pacific proceeded well for the Japanese. They successfully destroyed six of the U.S.'s nine Pacific battleships with their attack at Pearl Harbor in December 1941. And the six months that followed, they swept through the Western powers' former colonial holdings in East and Southeast Asia. But in June of 1942, the Battle of Midway changed the course of the war. English military historian John Keegan called it the most stunning and decisive blow in the history of naval warfare. But Japan wasn't finished using writers as a part of their military effort. Ten days after the Battle of Midway, the government launched the Nihon Bungaku Hokukukai, or the Patriotic Association for Japanese Literature, and that absorbed the pre-war Women's Literature Society as the Women's Literature Division. Censorship within Japan intensified as Japan's position worsened, and that applied not just to explicitly militaristic or pacifistic texts. One famous example is Junichiro Tanizaki's novel, The Makioka Sisters. The Makioka Sisters is widely considered one of the greatest works of modern Japanese literature. It's not an especially political novel. Like most contemporary Japanese novels, it was published serially, and the first two installments had already been published in early 1943. The journal, though, pulled the third installment. Instead of the novel, people who purchased the journal found this notice instead. Having taken into consideration the possibility that this novel might exert an undesirable influence in view of the present exigencies at this decisive stage of the war, we have regretfully decided from the standpoint of self-discipline to discontinue further publication. Throughout the war, government and cultural pressure profoundly influenced what writers produced. The government continued to push the idea that the war was part of a grand mission to overcome modernity. It tried to change not just literature, but the Japanese language itself. For one, it tried to remove any foreign influences from the Japanese language, especially foreign influences that were markedly English. It was no longer okay to use the English words studaiku for a labor dispute or auto for something that happened in a baseball game. It wasn't okay anymore to call your parents mama or papa. But regardless of what kind of pressure was being applied, writers didn't necessarily comply happily, regardless of their points of view about the war itself. You may know about writers that this is not a group of people that respond well to being told what to do. Writers weren't just compelled to write things that encouraged their fellow Japanese to fight on. For example, the Ministry of Finance pressured writers as the domestic situation got worse through 1944. They issued orders like, write a novel that will make people save money, or publish something that will encourage women to be even more frugal. And it was really only very famous writers who got away with being more or less indifferent. I've already mentioned Junichiro Tanizaki and the Makioka Sisters. After the Makioka Sisters was censored, 
he turned to translating the tale of Genji into modern Japanese. As you may recall, the tale of Genji was more than a thousand years old at this point. Uh, Osamu Dazai, whom we discussed last time, wrote a collection of fairy tales and some apolitical short stories about his experiences on the home front. Other writers who didn't want to be complicit with the military skirted this kind of pressure by writing biography and history that was hundreds of years old. By 1944, most people in Japan were struggling for basic survival. A severe paper shortage made publishing nearly impossible, and as the war drew to a close, it became harder and harder for writers to produce anything at all. At noon, on August 15, 1945, the Emperor of Japan made his first ever radio broadcast. It announced Japan's unconditional surrender. Under the circumstances of defeat, the enforcement of censorship laws was quickly relaxed. Criticism of the emperor system quickly became not just tolerated, but even commonplace. The Patriotic Association for Japanese Literature was disbanded in September. By October, American occupation officials made declarations that guaranteed freedoms of speech, the press, and assembly. It ordered the Japanese government to extend civil and political rights like these to women, and it freed Communist Party members who had been jailed under the peace preservation law. At this point, people in Japan really wanted to read. Even on the cusp of starvation, crowds of people rummaged through used bookstalls. People camped overnight outside major bookstores waiting for new works of political philosophy. And maybe surprisingly, 1946 and 1947 were a period of renaissance for Japanese literature. Why surprising? For one, the publishing infrastructure in Tokyo had been all but destroyed by bombing and fire. For another, extreme inflation meant that journals could run through a year's budget in just a month or two. Paper was still in short supply. The paper shortage turned out to have a fascinating impact on the Japanese publishing industry right after the war. Some of the earliest post-war publications were reprints on low-grade recycled paper called Senkashi. And finally, maybe the Renaissance is surprising because, despite all of its gestures of free speech, the occupation instituted a system of censorship of its own. In Japan, the responsibility for censorship fell to the Supreme Commander for the Allied Powers, or SCAP, and under SCAP, the Civil Censorship Detachment, or the CCD. At first, CCD collected and examined everything published or performed in Japan. Newspapers, books, magazines, radio, theater, and scripts. In fact, CCD almost killed Kabuki Theater, although that's another story for another day. To evaluate all this content, CCD had to rely on 5,000 Japanese people and a handful of foreign nationals literate in Japanese. And these people were called examiner translators. As you'd expect, American occupation authorities had different priorities for what they wanted to censor than Japanese authorities in the 1930s and early 1940s. 
Their target was writing deemed feudalistic or patriotic, anything occupation leadership thought might support a resurgence of militarism. Scap was also extremely wary of accounts of the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki or descriptions of the aftermath. Now, the examiner translators were hired for their language skills, not their literary training. They knew what the words on the page said, but not always the words' deeper meaning or intent. I get the impression that some authors took pleasure in trying to sneak things past them. Other times, the examiner translators clearly saw threats where there were none. For example, Jinichiro Tanizaki found another more or less apolitical story censored. This time it was a story called Letters from Mrs. A. It's an epistolary story. That means a story told through letters. And it's maybe a kind of silly one. It's about a woman who falls in love with a pilot she's never met based just on the way he flies. She imagines that his plane flies more gracefully and the plane makes music instead of normal airplane noises. Ultimately, there were virtually no authors who escaped the censors untouched. Osamu Dazai and the 1968 Nobel laureate for literature Yasunari Kawabata were both targets. So was Leo Tolstoy, who had been dead for about 45 years when he appeared in Japanese translation. One thing authorities didn't censor unwholesome literature. And for not censoring unwholesome literature, they often faced the chagrin of the Japanese government and the Japanese examiner translators. Maybe the most extravagant example of unwholesome literature under the occupation were something called katsutori zashi, or the dregs. Katsutori magazines were made from black market recycled paper, The term actually comes from a kind of cheap wine brewed from the sake dregs. They were more or less pure smut. Porn, crime, exposés. One of the best known was a magazine called Ryoki, and it at least claimed to have a mission. This is what they printed in their 1946 first issue. Our only wish is for you to enjoy the magazine in those moments of rest when you have become exhausted in body and spirit from the tasks of building a nation of peace. Occupation authorities essentially left this smut alone. Jay Rubin, who is an important scholar of modern Japanese censorship, interviewed one Japanese examiner translator who told him that the CCD officer's only interest in pornography was in reading it for themselves. In some ways... Occupation censorship was less dangerous than trans-war Japanese censorship. After all, there was no longer a secret hire police, and authors and editors didn't go to prison for angering the CCD or SCAP. But in other ways, occupation censorship was more insidious, sneakier, than earlier Japanese censorship. It was, in fact, supposed to be a secret. The U.S. was supposed, after all, to be a model democracy. Any mention that it wasn't practicing what it preached, that it was indulging in censorship, was forbidden. Wartime Japanese censorship often marked passages that had been cut with XXX marched, a system called Fuseji. The occupation, on the other hand, 
required censored writings to be completely rewritten. That meant it wasn't obvious a work had been tampered with at all. And while there was a public press code, SCAP also had a secret list of standards its censors were supposed to simply memorize. Those instructions told employees to look out for criticisms of the Supreme Allied Commander Douglas MacArthur, mentions of fraternization between occupation troops and Japanese people. That essentially meant they didn't want any mentions of American soldiers having sex with Japanese women or men. Mentions of any American involvement with the black market or pessimistic views of ongoing catastrophic food shortages. All of that said, CCD did let a surprising amount of criticism stand as long as authors avoided charged words. For example, a censor might require an author to change a description of American troops' actions from the enemy's landing to simply their landing. I'd also like to note the way censorship affected the Japanese people's ability to come to grips with what had happened to them. John Dower wrote one of the most highly regarded English language books about this time period. It's a book called Embracing Defeat. He describes how, quote, the need to grieve publicly, to mourn and speak well of the dead, in some instances unsurprisingly transgressed what the censors deemed proper and permissible. All told, CCD censorship wasn't in place for all that long. By June of 1947, CCD began to gradually relax controls. In late 1947, most publishers were transferred to a status called post-censorship. The CCD more or less rubber-stamped all new content from these publishers. And by late 1948, all were. By the fall of 1949, CCD ended its censorship operations entirely. There's one big question, though, that I haven't answered yet. What happened to the writers who cooperated with the military during the war? Many of them were purged. In general terms, to purge someone means to remove them from power and keep them out of it. SCAP screened almost three-quarters of a million possible purgees. They ultimately excluded about 200,000 from holding public office. Most of these purgees were politicians and businessmen, but some were writers. For a writer, being purged turned out to not be that big of a deal. Earlier, I mentioned Ashihie Shino. He's the actually enlisted author with the list of demands that the military placed on his writing. He was officially purged in 1948, but he continued to publish under a pen name. The author Shiro Ozaki was even informally labeled a war criminal by the Journalist Association in Japan, but he was able to continue publishing middlebrow and erotic fiction, again under a pen name. And in 1951, shortly before the occupation ended, all but about 5,000 purgees were de-purged and allowed full political rights under the new Japanese constitution. In the end, the relatively hands-off approach toward literature of the early occupation didn't last. The Cold War escalated. Washington grew more skeptical of its liberal approach toward Japan. 
SCAP underwent what's now known as its reverse course. It de-purged those 200,000 purgees and enabled the Japanese to purge 13,000 Communist Party members. SCAP tacitly or openly supported conservative leaders retaking power in post-war Japan. Again with SCAP's tacit approval, the Japanese government began to reimpose civil penalties against publishers of obscene material. This time, the publishers were prosecuted in court. The occupation ended in April of 1952, years or even decades earlier than most people expected. The U.S. retained control of Okinawa and the right to maintain military bases and troops in Japan. The legacy of World War II writing in Japan lasted for decades after the war ended in 1945, decades after the American occupation ended in 1952. There are many relevant genres that didn't even come up in this episode that deserve episodes of their own. Genbaku Bungaku, or atomic bomb literature, is an especially compelling and important genre. I'm going to do at least one complete episode on atomic bomb literature. The literature of Okinawa is far richer than just a response to World War II. Although, of course, the history of the Ryukyu Islands has been indelibly scarred by the war and the extended American military presence there. Okinawan literature is another topic I'd like to take up in a future episode. And the echoes of World War II continue to resound even in fairly recent fiction. To end today, I'd like to talk about an author who wrote some of the most compelling works of World War II fiction. He was a survivor of the war. He was only 14 when the war ended, and he didn't write about his experiences until two decades later. Akiyuki Nosaka was born in Kamakura in 1930. After his mother died, he grew up with his maternal aunt in Kobe, to the west and farther from the coast. His foster family also adopted a little girl. World War II was no easier for Nosaka than it was for most Japanese young people. Near the end of the war, his foster father was one of 9,000 civilians who died in the March 1945 firebombing of Kobe. His 16-month-old foster sister died from malnutrition shortly after the end of the war. During the occupation, Nosaka was caught stealing and lived for a while in a youth detention center. Conditions were so horrific, the boys imprisoned there regularly died. Decades later, Nosaka came back to his experiences by writing about them in Stories for Children. He won the Naoki Prize for The Grave of the Fireflies and American Hijiki in 1967. The Grave of the Fireflies is Nosaka's most famous story. The director Isao Takahata of Studio Ghibli made the story into a film in 1987. It is widely regarded as one of the greatest animated films of all time. I've also heard it described as the best movie you will only watch once. Nosaka eventually produced a collection of stories. They were originally conceived as fairy tales, and they're all about World War II and its aftermath. The collection is published in English both as The Whale That Fell in Love with the Submarine and The Cake Tree in the Ruins, both translated by Jenny Topley Takamori. Dr. David Fedman wrote a gorgeous tribute after Nosaka died. 
He described this group of Nosaka stories as, quote, less a collection of children's stories about war than a compilation of war stories about children. That is to say, I don't know that I would hand Nosaka's collection to children, at least not to read alone. But most of Nosaka's career didn't obviously reflect his early tragedies. Dr. Fedman compared Nosaka to Dos Equis, the most interesting man in the world, because of a TV ad he did for Suntory Whiskey in the 1970s. You can find a YouTube link on the website. The label The Most Interesting Man in the World also fits because of his long and extremely diverse career. In 1964, for example, he wrote an award-winning children's song called Omocho no Cha-Cha-Cha, or the Cha-Cha-Cha of the Toys. It has been included on lists of the top 100 Japanese songs of all time, and there's also a link on the website. Nosaka is famous for his sexually explicit writing. He's been compared to Tokugawa-era writer Ihara Saikaku, whom we discussed in an earlier episode. One of his other best-known works is called The Pornographers. He published that one shortly before The Grave of the Fireflies. It was based on his own short-lived career. Incidentally, he was also fined for his editorial role in publishing a sexually explicit story by Nagai Kafu. So here's another example of a kind of censorship stretching all the way to 1980. Nosaka was also a Rakugo comic storyteller, a chanson singer, a kickboxing enthusiast, a member of the House of Counselors, which is the upper house of the Japanese diet. He suffered a stroke in 2003, but still appeared in the Mainichi Shimbun, one of Japan's most important newspapers, and occasionally on television. He died on December 10th, 2015, when he was 85 years old. The Cake Tree in the Ruins is my favorite of Akiyuki Nosaka's war stories for children. And it's my favorite because of all his stories, it is the one that offers the reader hope. All of his war stories culminate on August 15, 1945, the day Emperor Hirohito announced Japan's unconditional surrender. In the story, schoolchildren have scoured a ruined city for the materials to make lean-tos and temporary shelters for their families. They used charred wood for fuel, they fetch seawater, and everyone goes to sleep at sundown because there's no electricity. Nosaka is famous for his Rai narration. This time the narrator notes that, depending on your perspective, this could be considered a very healthy lifestyle. Except, of course that people are starving. As in many of his stories, Nosaka's focus in The Cake Tree and the Ruins is on how war affects the children. Adults were better at enduring these conditions, the narrator suggests, especially since it was the grown-ups who had gone to war in the first place. The narrator expresses special sympathy for the children born after 1935 because of conditions in Japan for the last decade they have no memories of eating anything tasty. It's worth noting that Nosaka himself is not included in this group. He was born in 1930. The children in this city spend most of their days scavenging for food. One day, they find a sweet-smelling tree they've never seen before. Unlike every other tree nearby, it is completely untouched by the fire. They break off branches and, 
The moment they put a piece in their mouths, it melts on their tongues and an indescribably sweet taste spreads through their entire bodies. This must be a cake tree, they guess. The narrator surprises the reader now. He takes us back to the days before the air raids. This yard was once attached to the biggest house in the whole area. In the house lived a sickly boy and his mother. As wartime rations shrank, the mother tried to ply the boy's appetite with whatever sweets she could beg or borrow. Eventually, she lucked into a bomkuchen, a German cake that has been popular in Japan for a long time. It's round like a pound cake, but it has concentric rings, so when it's cut, it looks something like the inside of a tree trunk. Because it saves well, she has doled out the cake to her son, little by little, almost as if it were medicine. The son saved the very last piece in the box for his special treasures. Sometimes he took it out to sniff so he could remember the taste of cake. One night, the air raid siren sounded. His mother left him in the shelter and returned to protect the house. She never came back. The boy stayed in the shelter all alone. Whenever he felt lonely or hungry, he gazed at the crumbs of cake in his treasure box. Eventually, he realized that the crumbs looked like seeds. What would happen, he wondered, if he planted these seeds? What would a cake tree look like? He planted the seeds, and then he promised the mice and lizards that lived with him in the shelter that he'll share with them if the tree grows. But when the tree really started to sprout, he couldn't bring himself to eat. The cake reminded him too much of his mother. And eventually he died. At the end of the story, the narrator takes the reader back to August 15th. The children don't know anything about the boy or his mother, but the cake tree sustains them. And no matter how much they eat, it always grows back. Now the tree is always surrounded by children gorging themselves on its delicious leaves and branches, but the grown-ups pass right by without ever noticing it was there. The children never learn about the tragedy their lives are built on, but from that tragedy, they can begin to take just a little bit of joy and hope. episodes asking why we should still read the books that we've discussed, but I'm going to ask a slightly different question today. Why should we still learn this history? It's really easy to lose track of the forces that control what we're reading. In pre-war Japan, it wasn't just the government that severely repressed leftist thought. It was also social pressure and the publishing market. During the war, it wasn't just censorship but material conditions as well, things like the shortages of paper. And the occupation made it look like ideas were more free, and in a lot of the ways that mattered, ideas were more free. But the occupation authorities also hid the ways it was limiting ideas, and it hid them pretty effectively. These are lessons that stay relevant. In 2010, Reporters Without Borders ranked Japan as the 12th freest press in the world, in 2022, it ranks 71st. Without getting too political, I invite you to check your own country's ranking and how it may have changed in the last 10 years. Need Tapley Takamori's translation of Nosaka's Cake Tree in the Ruins? 
You can find her translation in two different collections of Nosaka short stories for children, The Whale That Fell in Love with the Submarine and Cake Tree in the Ruins. The Whale That Fell in Love with the Submarine is a volume produced to share with children. It is shorter and illustrated. And The Cake Tree in the Ruins includes five additional short stories. There are always resources and more ideas for reading on the website. For this episode, there's a lot of extra content at readjapaneseliterature.com. Now that we're a dozen episodes in, I invite you to consider leaving a review of Read Japanese Literature on your podcast app of choice. I'd love to grow my audience, and for that, I need your help. Next time, the literature of change in the 1960s. We'll be looking at authors on the left and the right as they consider what it means to be Japanese in the post-war world. Nobel laureate Kenzaburo Oe and Yukio Mishima. If you want to offer feedback or suggestions, you can contact us through the website or tweet us at at readjapaneselit. Thank you to the Japanese Literature Twitter community and the Japanese Literature group on Facebook. In particular, thank you to Sharon Dormeyer for help with sources. Thank you to producer Kaim for today's music at Kaim Music and KaimMusic.com. Music.com.